prepare the best we can for on Sunday, the Lord's Day. And uh, there's a lot of just moving parts. And then with the two services, there's more volunteers needed for the first service and then the second service. And so I just want you to know that today has gone very smoothly, and that's just all due to you, the church, the body of Christ, the many members, the, the body coming together and just joyfully serving the Lord. I just want to say thank you. Uh, thank you to the, to the worship team members here. Thank you to the Simmonses, I believe, who are part of the team that took care of the Lord's table so that we can observe that tonight. Thank you to just, there's so many things to, to give thanks for, but um, truly it's what makes it all work and makes it all happen and uh, makes the heart of this pastor very full of joy. And it's a joy to serve the Lord here with you. One of our themes as we move into this new rhythm is just this theme of worship one and serve one on, on the Lord's day. And that's because it's needed. And our goal is that we don't lose our intimacy and just our fellowship and our connections. And so a couple of things that will help guide that. We just want to encourage you as the elders to make sure you're being plugged into one of the small group Sunday school classes and that is going to be really the key time to where the, the moving shifts, if you will, connect. And so we can't emphasize that enough. And then, of course, these Lord's Day evening worship services allow that additional opportunity as well. So again, we've just kind of adopted the, the theme, worship one and serve one on the Lord's Day. And so if you're being asked to serve somewhere, if you're being signed up, uh, just know that it's the heart of the leadership and it's the principles of leadership that, that we want you to be serving, worshiping the Lord first in some capacity on the Lord's Day before we get you plugged in and serving somewhere. So please help us with that and we're praying for you and want to say thank you for all that you've done. All right, Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to introduce this passage here this evening as we come to this remarkable portion of Scripture. And in one sense, it is a repeat but it's still different from what we saw in Matthew chapter 18. But Jesus comes back to this theme of, of children. And we find our passage this evening in Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15. So Matthew chapter 19, picking up in verse 13, Then the little children were brought to Jesus that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. Don't prevent them. Don't stiff arm them for such is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 15, and so he laid his hands on them and then departed from there. When we come to Matthew chapter 19, moving in Matthew 19 into chapter 20, this is one complete section of thought. And then when you look at the accounts that we find here, they seem to be disjointed. At first glance, when we come across them, they seem to be unrelated. After all, what do children, as we see in our text tonight in verses 13 through 15, what do children have to do with rich people in verses 16 through 30, where we see in the next section, uh, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus for counsel. And seemingly, it would seem as if, well, these two things certainly have nothing to do with each other. And then the next section is workers in a vineyard, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. And then the following section after that is Jesus predicts his own death and resurrection. Then in chapter 20, verses 1 through 28, or the, uh, the next passage down, there is a mother's request for her four sons' future reward and then there's the healing of the two blind men. 
They seem to be disjointed, standalone passages that are compiled together by Matthew. But you'd be surprised that they have more to do with each other, and there's various truths that we may glean from them, but there are common denominators that we will find in all of them. And there's this one overarching truth that we will find in these sections of Scripture, and it's namely this. When it comes to salvation, church, even the church needs the gospel. We need to remind ourselves of the gospel. Here's the one overarching truth that we will find in each one of these passages is that salvation is the free gift of God. It's because of his divine mercy. There is nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can do in our flesh or our good works to merit it. That is one of the key overarching things that we will see through all of these passages. So get ready, church, to hear that again and again and again. Salvation is impossible without the mercy of God. It is the good news for unbelievers, and it is the good news for believers that we rest in the righteous works of Christ. When we come to verses 13 through 15, we come to this passage that leads us to ask this question, how does Jesus consider children? How does Jesus see children? When he sees children, what does he think of them? How does he feel about little ones? So our passage today gives us insight and thought to that. In fact, this passage that we'll find in our verses this evening is one of the few texts that is recounted in the Synoptic Gospels. So the the Synoptic Gospels, just by way of reminder, are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, excluding John. This is one of those key passages that are found in all three of those Gospels. And they're all recorded almost verbatim, in detail, written in the same way. We'll frame our thoughts this evening around these three very brief points. Number one, the reason in verse 13. Secondly, the rebuke that is given. And then thirdly, the reception. The reception. So the rebuke, excuse me, the reason, the rebuke, and the reception. First off, looking into our text, I want us to note, number one, the reason. Uh, The reason these little children were brought to Jesus. Notice with me there in verse 13. Then... Little children, Pideon, were brought to him that Jesus may put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. Now, we don't understand exactly what was the driving motivation here in the text for why the parents, the knowledgeable others, the individuals who were entrusted with the care of these children were bringing them to Jesus other than the fact they wanted him to have a moment with them, to put his hands upon them. There's no tenor in the text, at least the Holy Spirit doesn't record for us, that the reason they were being brought to Jesus was to be healed, as we see all throughout Matthew's gospel. It could be that some of them did need healing, but it seems as if, just simply on the surface reading of the text, that these knowledgeable others, these parents, these older brothers and sisters bringing younger Children, we we can understand a conglomeration of of people, but the emphasis is the little ones in the group are trying to get to Jesus, and there's the sole simple desire for FaceTime with him, that he would put his hands on them and pray with them. What a beautiful picture, by the way. What a beautiful, and and I want to be careful that we don't just sit here and reduce this to some type of precious moments scene. I think we would do a travesty to the text if we did that. You know what I mean by that. You know, we just think of it as cute and light and how sweet and special. Friends, listen, we would be missing the richness of this passage if in our minds we reduce it to simply, to simply that. 
But what a beautiful thought to think about Jesus praying and to think about Jesus praying over us and then more specifically Jesus praying over children. Now, little children here in the text can mean anywhere in Jewish thought and vernacular and language understanding, anywhere from infancy to 12 years of old. I, I, I can't remember which message it was, but recently I mentioned that um, in Jewish thought and Scripture, all throughout the Scriptures, there's no sense of the teenage years really mentioned in the Bible. There's just kind of two categories of people. You're either a youth, a child, a little one. Uh, or you are a, an adult. So you're either a boy or you're a man. You're either a, you're a girl or you're a woman. And really the distinguishing factor is not a numerical age in that, although of course there's a sense to that's kind of obvious. That's, there's the, the maturation process. But what made a, a man, a boy, a man was maturity. Uh, the ability to farm, the ability to work. The, the, the ability to provide, and without getting too far off track, even in cultures today, it's odd to us here in America, um, young men are considered ready to, to move on in life if they can check the boxes of provision and maturity and fight and all of those types of things. And so young, some boys are considered men at 15 and 16 in certain cultures and even in the ancient cultures. And there are some men who were in their 20s and 30s who were considered boys. You get the idea. We're not going to keep going down that, that direction. What does it mean as little children? Well, in the idea was anywhere from infancy to, to 12 years of age. In Jewish thought, once a young man or a young girl reached 12 years, they immediately begin to prepare for adulthood. And so these are the ages of the children. We don't have more specifics than that. They're being brought, they're young enough that they need to be brought, our text tells us, to Jesus. We ask the question, why are they being brought? Well, so that he may put his hands on them and pray, that he might physically touch them and pray for them. This is the desire of either the children or the ones who care for them. And as beautiful as this scene is, all that is beautiful about it is quickly interrupted. The beautiful pool of water is, is interrupted by the stiff-arming disciples. Notice there with me in verse 13. But the disciples didn't just turn them away. What, what does that word say? It, it rebu they rebuked them. Well, let's just kind of hit pause here for a second and consider this. Jesus is surrounded by his, his disciples. They mean well. It's easy for us to come to this text and immediately kind of demonize the inner 12. But we need to understand their thinking as well. In Roman culture, in Greco-Roman society, children were an afterthought. They had no value until, unless they were a slave or unless they were put to all types of unmentionable uh, occupations, there was really no value in children until a certain age where they could begin to contribute into the household. I'm not saying that was the, the, uh, the, the full thought of all the Jewish people, but it was definitely the Greco-Roman thought. And at times when we understand the, Jew, the, the disciples' mindset, they are far more influenced by the culture than even they realize. They're still learning. They're still growing as they follow Jesus. Jesus has himself surrounded with these disciples who have a cultural view of the day of children. And that is to say that children are things, property, they are placeholders. You could put it like this, they are not bringing any value to the, the family unit yet. Now, let me be clear, I'm not saying this as this is my belief or that this is our belief. I want to be very clear, this is the Greco-Roman 
believe. In fact, I'm not going to go down this road, but it was the father had absolute, in Greco-Roman society, authority and power over life and death in the home, over slaves, over servants, over children. If he did not want a child, if there were twins that were born, he could choose to keep one and dismiss the other. If there was a default or deformity in one, he could make the executive decision to, to be rid of them. In fact, it's one of the ways the church shone in the early church in the first century when the church began to be known as those who went out and reclaimed those who were cast out through orphanages and through adoption. There's much research and literature on that that helps us to know that and to understand that. Here's what we need to understand. They are not bringing value to the, the family yet, the way, the cultural way of thinking. They are only consuming. They're taking. They are a drain on resources. They need to be provided for. They need to be protected and they certainly do not have, as our vernacular today would say, a seat at the table. In one sense, you could say it like this. They are on the margins. They had potential for later value, but not today. So as the disciples see the children coming, I'm not saying that they fully endorsed all of that thinking. Simply by their action of rebuking, refusing them to have access to Jesus, it's very clear that, that there is something wrong here. In the eyes of the disciples, the parents, the knowledgeable others, the older siblings are doing something wrong. Jesus is too important for this. Jesus is too busy for these people. Now, because of the cultural view of children, there's no doubt that they believe, that the disciples believe that they're doing efficient work here. They're Jesus' handlers, for lack of better words. They are protecting him. They're not wasting his time. They see how exhausted he is. They see him pour himself out to anyone and everyone who comes to him. I have no doubt the disciples think they're being a friend to Jesus. They're keeping problems away. But it's interesting how they can forget Matthew chapter 18 so quickly. And we're going to refer to this passage twice. So I want to ask you to go back one page. Go back to Matthew 18 verse 1. It's not as if this is... Now Matthew, of course, is compiling his accounts, not necessarily chronologically, but thematically. So even if Matthew 18 is just behind Matthew 19 in the way that we have the record of Scripture... The, the point is, is they have forgotten this account when this took place, when this happened. And how could they forget this? In fact, Jesus uses a child to explain what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, 1, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Like, how could you forget this conversation? It was an embarrassing moment for them. Like, you remember embarrassing moments, don't you? I know I do. This is an embarrassing moment for them. Who then, Jesus, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, and he set the child who obeyed and came at his command, and he sat him in the midst of them and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Well, this is a passage that they should have remembered because of its importance, because of the embarrassing nature of what it was to them personally. And here so quickly they have forgotten all of these things. They're in fact rejecting 
preventing the little ones that Jesus described as those who inherit the kingdom of heaven and their humility and their trustingness in their obedience. You know, it's a lesson for us, isn't it, teachers, parents, anyone, everyone who is around children, and hopefully all of us to some degree are around children. The children are, we don't worship them uh, as some parts of our society and culture does, but if we're intimately interested in the future, you need to be intimately interested in children because that is the future. That's the future of Grace Church. It's the future of any organization. It's the future of any program, any school. It's looking backwards and, and, and faithfully bringing along those who are behind because the day will come where we, the roles change. We'll put it like that, right? Well, it's a reminder to us that just as the disciples need rep petition. They need to be reminded. They need to be taught. It's a helpful encouragement to us to know that to be faithful in teaching the gospel, be faithful in teaching the truth, be faithful to teach sound doctrine. Repetition is the key to learning and knowledge, and we see that right here in the life of the disciples. So coming back to Matthew 19 now, we'll go back to Matthew 18 in just a little bit, but coming back to Matthew 19, Here we find the disciples so confident and sure that they knew what Jesus wanted, and yet they were completely wrong. Have you ever been there? There's moments in parenting, there's moments in ministry, there's moments in pastoring, there's moments in adulthood to where we just know we are right. And then the Holy Spirit shows us the error of our belief or the error of our thinking, and we are humbled We are exposed by the Word of God, by the truth of God. Now, notice the disciples thinking. Who is it they're resisting? Well, they're resisting little ones. Well, in the next passage, in verses 16 through 30, notice who they don't resist. A rich young ruler comes waltzing along. This way, sir. This way, please. Right up to the front. Make make his path straight. They, they, They usher him right up to the presence of Jesus. No one tries to stop the, all the things our society today worships. Rich, young, ruler. Wealth, money, looks, power. The rich young ruler is going to be a fascinating study for us to come to when we, when we come to him because he is the everyman that our society idolizes. What the idols of our culture are, not only then, but, but also today. And no one says, excuse me, where's your credentials? Where's your car? Do you have an appointment, rich young ruler? Uh, not at all. I just want to see Jesus. Oh, okay, sure. Come right this way. So they don't even think to hinder him or to stop him from coming to Jesus. Why wouldn't Jesus want to talk with him? He must think like us. He, he wouldn't want to deal with the children. He thinks exactly as we think. And the disciples could not be more wrong. just want to hit pause here before we move to point number two, and it's simply this. Listen, our task, church, is to not make Jesus like me, not to make Jesus like us. Our task is just to be renewed into the mind of Christ. And just very quickly, I want you to go with me to Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. Just on this point, we need to put our eyes in it, because I think this is the battle and the tension of discipleship living, following Jesus, the struggle of the flesh versus the Spirit. 
when we're unplugged from the gospel and our understanding of it, and we begin to go back into a works righteousness system with God. We're saved by grace through faith, yes, but today we're trying to earn his favor. What, what I'm trying to do today because of my job or my parenting or my service for the church or for the Lord, God's going to be pleased with me today because of what I did for him. He, he, he's going to give me extra smiles today, more favor today because of, of what we did for him. That, that's the way we think. We can earn God's favor well, we don't need to make God into our thinking or take him and make him like us, make Jesus think like we think. Our task is to be renewed by the word of God moment by moment, day by day. And, we, and to do that, we've got to be saturated with it. Notice Romans 12, 1, Paul says this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I urge you, uh, the church, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. I just want to hit pause here. What's easy to do is, is visions of grandeur, of dreams, of saying, what could I do for Christ? Maybe I could, maybe, you know what? I would never deny him. I, I would, if given the opportunity, I would, I would die for Christ. I would, if somebody put a gun to my head, I would say, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And kill me now. That's the way we think. We think, I, I would never deny Christ. I would, I would not crumble in the moment of testing or temptation. I would be one of those that's worthy of Hebrews 11. I would be one of those that's worthy of Fox's Book of Martyrs, Jesus Freaks, or whatever the continued books are that can, can help continue to record for us those around the world who faithfully live for Christ and have to suffer for his name. Well, that's good, but I'm just going to tell you, that's not what God has asked us to do. What? Yes, that's not what God has asked us to, all of us to do. More importantly, what we do know that God has asked us to do is simply this, to live for him. We focus on dying for him, and good, if that opportunity comes your way, then die for him. That, and may the Lord give us dying grace, and may the Lord help us to do that. No doubt, I, I'm not mocking that. But I think the thing we completely miss in our thinking and in our sharpening of one another is just simply this, living for him. Presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to him, as wholly acceptable to God, it's our reasonable service because of his grace, because of his mercy. Then verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, pushed into its mold, pushed us to his thinking. Hey, disciples, you're thinking like the culture. Hey, disciples, you're thinking Jesus thinks like you think. Don't be that way. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Church, this, this is our task. This is our faithfulness. This is, this is what it means to live faithfully in Christ as salt and as light. What is the will of God for me today? The will of God for me and you today is to worship him like we have done and serve him with his people. And the word of God for us today is to come before his word, before his gospel, and to present ourselves before it and say, God, in all these ways, in prayer, in intercessory prayer, we're, we're saying, Lord, my thinking is wrong and your word is exposing it. I've been fearful here. I've been tempted here. My friends, have, we've been talking in this way and yet something seems off and now as I've studied your word your word is showing me that this is out of step the mantras of the culture or the mantras of humanism is different than what I see in your truth and in your word 
Father, would you renew my mind, transform my thinking, give me your thoughts, help me to know your mind. Philippians 2, we're not turning there, but just quoting, Paul says this, let this mind be in you, Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, that's it, that, that mind of Christ, and right here, the disciples don't have it, but we need it. They need it, and we need the mind of Christ. Coming back to Matthew 19, number one, we saw the reason that these little ones are being brought to Jesus. Secondly, I want us to see the rebuke that Jesus gives in verse 14. Notice what he says here. He says, but Jesus said, let, it's almost as if he's interacting, doing ministry, and he, he looks over and he sees this kerfuffle taking place, and he speaks to his disciples, and he says, let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them for such is the kingdom of heaven. That, that is the review. That's the connection going back to Matthew chapter 18, where he uses that little one as an as a example, as an object lesson. Here we have Jesus rebuking his disciples. They rebuke the parents. Jesus rebukes them. Notice it's a, it's a two-sided rebuke. First off, he says, let them come, literally stop preventing them from coming, or stop stopping them, start letting them come to me. So it's two-sided, it's stop stopping them, stop preventing them, and start letting them come to me. Now, in my just meditation over the sermon this evening, this afternoon, just before the message, I was just, it hit me kind of afresh and anew. In what ways am I, as a disciple of Jesus, doing this and I don't even know it? In what areas in my thinking, in my attempts at faithfulness to Jesus, and I don't know, it's going to take time, it's going to take prayer, and it's going to take reflection, but it is a question that I think would be worthy of us to write down or to think or just in the moment to consider. In what ways am I stopping people from coming as access, and like I am standing not in the gap for them, but I'm standing in the gap by what I say or, or what I do. Surely none of us here would be accused tonight of saying, don't come to Jesus, literally preventing them like the disciples are. But I, I mean proverbially in our lives. Is it hypocrisy? Is it the fact that our lives don't match what we say? Is it inconsistencies? Or is it in wrong-held beliefs? Is it in preferences that we, it's good for us to, to hold to them and say, this, these things are important to me. These things are, I think, are, I, I pull them from Scripture. But they're not the main thing. They're not the things that should prevent an unbeliever. Listen, the lost need Jesus. They don't need to be cleaned up. The lost need the access to come to the gospel and to Christ. We don't need to put new clothes on them. We don't need to put band-aids on cancer. Are, are you tracking with me? Uh, maybe not. Okay, maybe I'm not being clear, but I, I want to be clear. Uh, so I'll just summarize it like this. Are there things in my life that I'm, I am making the main thing that are not the main thing? Are there things in my life that are causing me to proverbially stand in the gap that are preventing people who all they know about Christ is through me or through you, the people that are in your life? And you may not even know it. You may not even see it. It's something that you're, that's why we call them blind spots. You're completely blind to the reality that this is a stumbling block 
Bottom line, the Holy Spirit, may he apply that to our hearts and lives, reveal to us what that may be. But the reality is here, he rebukes the very people who are supposed to be his hands and his feet. He says, stop stopping them from coming to me and start letting them come to me. Charles Spurgeon has a classic sermon on this text. I highly recommend it to you. This text has been used uh, for all types of proof texts and base texts for infant baptism, uh, for all types of reasons that the church throughout the years, salvific infant baptism is what I mean, um, those who would equate it with salvation and other things, uh, th- they use this, this passage. None of those things are what Jesus is, is saying. He's simply saying, let them come to me. So number one, the reason. Number two, the rebuke that Jesus gives. And then number three, the reception. The reception, the warm reception that Jesus tells to everyone present there beginning in in our verse. Notice it's verse 14. He says, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for such is the kingdom of heaven. For such is the kingdom of heaven. Literally, for something like these. Let's go back to chapter 18, verse 2 to make this connection for this phrase. For such is the kingdom of heaven. Or for something like these is the kingdom of heaven for, I want to make this connection, it's not the, the simple fact that the child is a child, we need to establish this, it's not the simple fact that the child is a child, that, that the kingdom of heaven is for these, it's the characteristics of childlikeness, you could say. Chapter 18, verse 2, assuredly, going back to that passage, assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children. So what's Jesus saying? Unless you experience the new birth, unless you humble yourself as a little child and come, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is pointing to the connection between trusting, obeying, humbling, frailty, And coming to Jesus with hands that are not full, but hands that are empty. And we're going to make that connection when we look at the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, as we'll see next, is coming to Jesus with hands that are already full. And as the poet Martha Snell Nicholson said, he cannot give, and it's just off in my memory, but he cannot give to hands that are already full. But that's just it. Children are not coming with hands that are already full. The idea is is they're humble, they're needy. They are those who see their need and they come to Jesus like this. Ones like this is what Jesus is saying. Now we'll come back finally to our passage back in Matthew chapter 19. When we come to Jesus, we must be prepared to humble ourselves, start all over, to come confessing our dependence upon Him and Him alone. When we come to Jesus, like these little ones, we come needing, listen here, everything. We can't contribute one thing to our being reconciled to Christ. We come to him needing everything. We come bringing nothing. And like the specific children in 18 and 19 who obey Christ, let them come to me. The ones that the apostles rejected These are the ones that Jesus is saying, let them have way, give way. They add no intrinsic value to the kingdom. 
according to the disciples. They are only needy. They are not sufficient. They are not strong, according to the disciples. They cannot underwrite his ministry. And Jesus says all of those things are the very things that qualify anyone who would come to salvation in me. All of those things are the very things that are what is required to see your need for Christ. The rich young ruler who we will see doesn't see his need. He's moral. He's good-looking. He's righteous. He has power. He's wealthy. And all of those things are going to damn his soul if he does not overcome them and come to Jesus as a little child. Well, lastly, we see in verse 15, just a a summary statement here, the result. Notice what the text tells us. And Jesus, he laid his hands on them, and he departed from them there. That's beautiful. I'm going to say it again. Notice with me. I hope you put your eyes to the text. He laid his hands on them. Don't miss this, church. Don't miss what this text is revealing to us, what this text is, is telling us. He, who is he? the Son of God. He is God. He puts His hands on them. Think about that. The very hands that will be nailed to the cross, He puts, He touches. What is touch? Touch is so desperately needed in our emotional development as little ones coming all the way up. And I will not, there's so many things I always want to say. I always feel like I'm hamstrung for time, but We all know the stories of little ones in orphanages around the world who do not get all of the things they need in their early development, and it scars them for life. They don't get that nurturing. They don't get the touch. They don't hear the warm words. They don't hear the embrace of a father or of a mother. Here you have the Heavenly Father who sends His Son, and He hugs them. He touches them. He warmly embraces them. Who is Jesus? He's God. He is the God who is near, and he's not afraid, like some of us are, I'm not poking at anybody, but sometimes we're, we say, well, I'm not the touchy-feely type. Well, we get that. Jesus is. In fact, John says this in 1 John chapter 1, he says this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness, and we declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that, verse 3, that we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. Did you catch it? The connection? Here's what I wanted you to catch. And our hands have handled. John is recounting the personal work of Christ. And one of the key things he says there is this, verse 1, And our our hands, John says, have touched him. Our hands have touched and handled the Messiah. And by implication, and his hands have touched and handled us. As well, That's what we see here in Matthew chapter 19. Here's the point. Jesus is God. Jesus is the God who is near. And Jesus comes. In fact, this is a key theme in Matthew. And I'm not going to have you turn back. But in Matthew 8, Matthew 17, Matthew 18, as we've already looked at, one of the key scenes of Jesus' miracles is that he touches 
those who are the untouchables. What do we mean by that? We, we often use that phrase, the untouchables, to define those who are on the margins of society, those who are diseased, or those who are in the lower caste system. In India, there's a phrase that's used for those who live in the slums, to those who have leprosy. The higher caste will look at the lower caste and they'll say, those are the untouchables. They won't even touch them or the things that they have touched because of the caste system. But not so with God. Here we have the God who touches Here, Jesus is not afraid to touch. In Matthew 8, he healed the leper, but by touching the leper. In Matthew 8, he touched Peter's sick mother-in-law. And no Jewish man would ever be found touching a woman. That just wasn't their culture. And yet Jesus touches her and heals her. He touched the little girl who died, and he brought her back to life. Peter was the one who was sinking, and he was terrified, and he cried out to Jesus, Lord, help! And Jesus gives him a verbal command. And he said, Jesus, save me. And Jesus didn't just say, well, get up, Peter. He, what? He reached down and he touches him. He grabs him by the hand and he pulls him up. Behold the God who's near. Behold the God who reaches. Behold the God who grabs. The God who saves by touching us. Matthew 17 in the transfiguration. If you remember, the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, passed out. And when they awoke, he was comforting them as a gentle shepherd, pastor, assuring them, comforting them after they literally fainted over the glory of God that they were able to take in and see. In Matthew 18, as we've just pointed to, he takes a child into his arms, is not afraid to appropriately hold them and hug them and to use that child as a, as a model for his people. Here, here's what I'm trying to say, and I think you're getting it, is this. Jesus is the God who is near, and he identifies in our suffering. He, as we saw this morning, it's what knitted Nehemiah's heart to the people of God. He identified with them. He poured out his heart to them. He said, we, us, and our. And as we made a connection to the gospel, 2 Corinthians 5, he who knew no sin became sin For us, that's what we will be rehearsing and remembering as we think about the finished work of Christ in the Lord's table here this evening. One of my favorite stories is the account from the island of Malachi over in Hawaii. It's been told that they have the tallest sea cliffs in the world. Of course, as I just said, Hawaii. You heard that, right? Hawaii is one of the most beautiful places in the world. But they say the island of Malachi is one of the most beautiful places in Hawaii. So what is the island of of Malachi? Well, the island of Malachi is where they take all the lepers in that part of the world, Oceania and Micronesia and some of those areas, and they will send them to the island of of Malachi. And the lepers live together. And you know all about leprosy. It's a theme throughout the scriptures. It is incurable apart from a miracle of the Lord. It causes the body to lose its feeling ultimately. And so over time, individuals die through diseases that come through infections as the body is literally worn away. You don't feel pain. You don't feel your senses, the touch, and all of those types of things. And so germs and diseases begin to come in and ravage the system, and, and ultimately will, something will take the life of, of the leper, the individual that has it. Well, the account is told of Joseph Damien, who went to the island of Malachi because his brother was called to go And yet his brother died, and before his brother died, he asked his brother to go in his place. So Joseph Damien, 
he followed and he went. And why did he go there? Well, he went to minister to the lepers with the gospel. He went to live among them. He, he went to be faithful to them. He went to teach God's word to them as a, as a shepherd, as simply trying to make disciples of Jesus. And so he went and he lived among them. He loved them. He ministered to them. He took the gospel to them. And one day while he was preparing his tea out of the kettle, he poured it and it spilled out and it landed on his foot. And it dawned on him, it took him a moment to realize that he didn't feel the scalding hot water that went all over his foot. So he did it again. He did the other foot. And he realized that he could not feel the scalding hot water on his skin. This, this afternoon, I was near the stove, and Charity's like, can you grab that out of the oven? And I'm not handy in the kitchen at all. And I, and I grabbed something that I thought would suffice, and it, it didn't. And as I opened the oven, and I thought this little rag would do it, and I about burned my hand off. And that, that's what he realized. This isn't, this isn't happening. I don't feel any of that. Well, the next morning, as his custom was, he stood before his fellow people on the island of Malachi, and his custom was to say it like this, my fellow believers, take your Bibles and turn with me too. They didn't catch it at first, but that morning, the following morning, he stood before them and said, my fellow lepers, let's take our Bibles and let's turn together. And the implication was clear. He had contracted leprosy. When he died, the people of Malachi were burying him or attempting to bury him, and the Belgian government said, no, you need to send him back. He's our hero. He's one of our heroes, and we want to we honor him. And the people said, no, he's one of us. He came to us. He identified with us. He lived among us, and he died as one of us. We, we don't want to send him back. But the government won out. They would not allow it. But they ultimately made a deal with the people, the citizens there of the island of Malachi, the leper colony. And here was the deal. They were able to, just bear with me, to cut off his right hand and to create a burial and a gravestone. And if you go to the island of Malachi today, I'm told that you will find the headstone of Joseph Damien. And the only thing that's there is his right hand. And one of the things they say, I'm not sure, I don't want to say it's there if it's not, but one of the things they say is, is they have the hand that touched them. They have the, the right hand that touched them and lived among them. Well, friends, that's moving. That's powerful. I was just thinking about in my own heart, if God called me to go live in among a, a, a leper colony, I would love to tell you that I would be delighted to do that. That would be difficult. And, um, but God hasn't. But you think about it. And you say, would I be willing to do that? And as moving as that is, what I'm trying to get us to see is, is that Jesus is the God who touched us. Jesus is the one who lived among us. So we see here in this passage the beauty of the gospel. We see that the children who were brought to Jesus, they were allowed to come to him, that he welcomed them, that he accepted them. And next time, we'll try to look at some further implications of this passage and questions that people have when it comes to the nature of children and the kingdom of God and how these things reconcile. And we'll attempt to try to do some of that in our next time together. Before we conclude, I want to give us some thoughts to consider, takeaway points, some application points to ponder based upon what we've looked at here in God's word. And the first one is just simply this. Church, remember this. Remember the gospel, that Jesus receives those who see their need him. 
those who recognize and realize that they are not self-sufficient, that they need a Savior, a Christ. Those who realize there is nothing that they can do to save themselves. Jesus receives them, welcomes them into his arms. Jesus receives those who are humbled. And we know that humility can only come about by the gracious work of the Spirit of God and the Word of God. If you're arrogant before God, listen, you will miss the kingdom of heaven. For Jesus rejects the proud. James 4, God resists in the same way the disciples were resisting the little children. Jesus resists that. The Bible doesn't talk about all the things that God resists, but it very clearly tells us in multiple places in Scripture, God resists the proud. You say always, always. Friends, there's no room for pride in our lives. Secondly, I want to say to little children, literally the, the little ones of Grace Church, because the text lends itself to that. I want to speak to you guys just for a moment. I want to encourage you. I don't know where all of you are in your relationship with the Lord. Young people, teens, all of you, youth, little ones, the youngest among us. I want to encourage you to come to Jesus. Jesus welcomes you. Jesus invites you. Jesus commands you to come to him. And I want you to know as, as much as we love you, as much and as precious as you are, and we love you here at Grace, you need to know that you are wicked. You need to understand that you are not neutral. You need to understand that you are not sinless, that even in your heart, you are a sinner against God. And even as I say that, some of the adults, I have no doubt, think, wow, that's harsh. Well, I'll just say it blunter than that. Little ones, apart from Christ, as Bodie Bauckham says, are vipers, in diapers. Now, I'm trying to be funny to make a point. Little ones, we love you, but you need Jesus. Young people, we love you, but you need Jesus. W listen, your parents love you, and we love you, but you must come to Jesus. And the good news is, is he will receive you. He, he will not cast you out. Hear me when I say this. You need to be saved from your sin. And the good news is, is he came to save you from your sin. Adults, now to you, same message applies to you. You need to humble yourself. You need to see your need for Christ. I want to tell all of us and remind all of us here this evening, you do not have to clean yourself up before you come to him. Children, teens, young people, you don't have to clean yourself up before you come to Christ. He will make you clean. He will make you new. He will make you whole. He will save you. Come to Jesus and rest in him. Believe in him. He will not turn you away. And by the way, all of us in God's sight are little children. And he says, let the little children come to me. Another point I'd like to give to us is simply this. Just like the disciples were far more influenced by the culture, the Greco-Roman culture of their day, than they could ever imagine, we are too. And it needs to be the prayer of our lives that we ask the Lord, Lord, would you show us, would you show me what is in my life a stumbling block to my unbelieving friends or my unsaved 
coworkers or people in my life that are not a disciple of Jesus, what is it in my mind or in my life or in my thinking or in my words, like the disciples here in this text, what is it that is a stumbling block to not only them, but is an offense to Christ, is an offense to God? Well, may the Lord help us as we think about these things, as we prepare for the Lord's table, as we come and celebrate the God who came, the God who is near, the one who came to us. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we close this portion of our service, we pray that you would bless your word to our hearts. Lord, we want to be as, Lord, close to you as we can. We thank you that we are positionally, through justification, Lord, made righteous legally, forensically. But Lord, in the sense of fellowship, in the sense of a father and a son or a father and a daughter as a child, as sons and daughters, Lord, we want to be right with you. We don't want there to be anything between us, the song says, our soul and the Savior. So Lord, in the quietness of this moment, as your word has been preached, we pray that your spirit would help us Lead us and prepare our hearts for the remembering of the table of the Lord. Church family, we're going to take just a, about a minute here just to pray in quiet and to allow.